0: Rita is a licensed professional counselor who specializes in the treatment of mental health disorders. In 2011, she created Heartline Radio, a broadcast show that addresses cutting-edge mental health issues and provides content to educate and equip listeners in how mental health affects our culture. Rita is a frequent contributor to many publications and is the author of Shattered, Finding Hope and Healing Through the Losses of Life, Imposter, Gain Confidence, Eradicate shame and become who God made you to be. And think this, not that, rewiring your brain to eliminate toxic thinking. She speaks around the country on mental health-related issues. She received her B.S. in psychology and her master's degree in counseling from Liberty University. Rita is no stranger to loss and suffering. In 2013, she lost her beloved husband to suicide and her world was decimated. She speaks candidly about this loss at her national workshops in the hope of helping others heal. Rita makes her home in the northern Virginia suburbs of Washington, D.C.
1: We have with us today Rita Schulte, who is an author and a therapist. She's going to tell you a little bit more about herself in a minute. But Rita, thank you for joining us today.
2: You're welcome, Kathy. Thank you for having me.
1: Sure. This topic is very difficult for me, and I want you to know how deeply I appreciate your willingness to tell your story. I will let you start by sharing a bit of your background with our audience first. You're a therapist, correct? Yes, I am. I'm a licensed professional
2: counselor in the Northern Virginia, D.C. area. I'm the author of several books. The newest release is coming, well, it actually came out two days ago with Moody Publishers, Surviving Suicide Loss, Making Your Way Beyond the Ruins. I'm a speaker around the country on grief, loss, and suicide and trauma. And, of course, I lost my beloved husband to suicide seven years ago. So it's been a long journey back.
1: Yeah, and that may sound like a long time for some people, but it really isn't because in your memory, I'm sure it's just as vivid today as it was then. Exactly. I was introduced to your book. This is your newest book, I believe, Surviving Suicide Law, Making Your Way Beyond the Ruins, which I think has just been released, correct? Yes. Okay. That's that's super. Congratulations. I don't think I was but a few sentences into chapter one when I felt uncertain I'd even be able to continue. Are you able to summarize for our listeners what happened that day? Yes. Um,
2: my husband had been struggling for about three or four months with a severe mental health condition. He was never depressed, never had any, anything, okay? He was, he was great. He was a really strong guy, pretty fearless. And then he started with these symptoms and he became very paranoid, uh, depressed, anxious, All this was going on and he and I went to Florida to our home there. We had a home in West Palm beach with some friends and he wasn't doing real well that weekend. And so he, he's also a pilot and he had a small plane and he didn't fly the plane. He flew commercially that time. So he was going to fly back Monday and I was going to fly back Tuesday And he was supposed to go to a mental health treatment facility at that time. And I was going to join him a couple of days later and stay with him for as long as was necessary. So Monday, he left. He was fine. We had the plan in place. And I spoke with him uh, that night. And then Tuesday morning, I started to call him and I couldn't get a hold of him. He didn't answer the phone. I actually had a friend drop me off at the airport. By then I was starting to get really panic-stricken. I couldn't get a hold of him. So, I ended up calling the doctor's office he was supposed to go to before he left. He was going to go and pick up this blood work and everything and then take take the flight down to Dallas. So, I was pretty much freaking out and I called this doctor's office and they told me he showed up for the appointment. Oh. So, I was able to you know, calm myself because I'm right. calling my daughter, calling my son, freaking out. I can't, you know, didn't hear from dad. I can't get a hold of him. So I get on the plane. And when I landed uh, in DC, I start calling him again. Still couldn't get him, but I kind of thought, well, you know, he's probably in transit. So my plan was to go over to my son's house when I got home. And when I got home, the cab pulled up in the driveway. I got out, and the car was still in the garage. Mm. So I thought, okay, well, maybe he took a cab to the airport. Right. And when I walked in the kitchen, I saw all of his stuff there. Uh oh. His Bible, his bag, all of it. Yeah. So I, you know, ran to the stairs. I walked up the stairs, and mm-hmm. when I turned the hall, the corner, our bedroom is in direct view down this long hallway. Okay. And I. Saw him. Oh. So I walk in and he'd shot himself in the head. Oh my gosh, Rita. So, you know, I don't need to tell you what that was like. Um, I just began screaming. I'm sure. Yeah. I just fled from the room. I ran downstairs and I just kind of collapsed on the po- floor and I curled up in a ball. Mm hmm. How I was able to call my son, I don't know, because I really don't remember a lot after, mm-hmm. but I called him and I can just remember, you know, he was screaming. And then I just remember they said, go sit by the door. And so I went into the laundry room where the side door was and I just crouched down mm-hmm. and I just, you know, was shaking right. and I just sat there until the police came. Yeah, And then that was about the end of what, you know, I really remember. Right.
1: Right. A lot of people
2: were coming in. I remember Michael and Ida coming. I remember, you know, I remember just those snippets. Sure. That was about it because really trauma uh, is asking us to put words to the unspeakable.
1: Exactly. Mm -hmm. And it's
2: very much stored in the body as body memory. Mm -hmm. That's why trauma isn't remembered as a coherent narrative with a beginning, middle and end. Only isolated sensory imprints, images, sights, sounds, feelings of terror and Of course, helplessness. Sure. So that that was it. I mean, it was it was surreal. It's a surreal today for me. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, I just had lunch with a a old high school friend of mine. Um. We were cheerleaders together. She drove up. I haven't seen her in a couple of years. And uh, her now husband. We used to double date, and we were talking about. It's just. It's no more. Like no one could believe this. Not my cruelty. Not a chance.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I can't. I have to honestly say, I can't or I can only imagine. I've never experienced that. So I can only imagine. And when I think of something like that, I think of just devastation Mm -hmm. that I don't know how you even made it downstairs to the kitchen, for example, or from the kitchen to the laundry room. You can sit here and you can tell us your story in what appears to be a very composed manner. I know your life was shattered. How did you then move through your grief to get to the point you were able at some point to take that deep breath and move forward?
2: Yeah, it was a long haul. For the first few months, I was pretty non-functional. It was all I could do to get out of bed and get into the shower. And I can remember getting in the shower and just feeling the water on my skin. And I felt like that's the only way I know I'm alive.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, I felt very, I carried a lot of guilt for a long time. Like I should have flown back with Mike on the plane. I should have this, I should have that. Like Mm -hmm. uh, all of those things, just, I was drowning in that. And so it was very hard to function. I was very blessed that I had a lot of support. I actually had one of my best friends They, the one that dropped me up at the airport in Florida, and they were uh, looking to build a house. They were moving to Mm -hmm. North Carolina and they basically moved in with me for a Um, year until their house was ready. So God really provided that support because I was drowning. Now, of course, my daughter was there and I mean, I certainly could have moved in with her, spent a lot of time together. Right. Uh, but literally, you know, they carried me. I got into counseling immediately okay. just because as a therapist, I knew right. I that was going to be important. I got into three groups, a grief group at my church, a suicide loss group, and then another suicide group. Okay. And, you know, I just, some days it was like, you know, falling backwards. Because Mike and I were high school sweethearts and I was okay. 16. Yeah, yeah. So it was, we had a very magical relationship. Right. And so, yeah, to watch Mm. him go, literally go crazy in front of my eyes in four months. It's horrifying.
1: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, it must be, it just has to be. So do you feel that having been a therapist, do you feel that that education, that experience helped you grieve or was that just kind of pushed aside and you, you just had to kind of muddle through it yourself?
2: I think it helped me in a lot of ways. I think I knew the things, the steps I needed to take to, you know, do this, what we call post-traumatic growth thing. Right. But it doesn't mean that it's any easier. There were some things that blindsided me, things that I thought, you know, would be huge triggers that weren't, things that Mm -hmm. I didn't think would trigger me, you know, that did. Right. Uh, but i I knew that I had to push through the difficult things like for example I couldn't go to national Airport for probably six months
1: oh yeah because yeah. that's where I
2: landed and got the exactly cab. and then let's see this was probably about eight months out maybe a dear friend of mine flew up from Atlanta and we were gonna we went on a couple of day trip to New York right. and when we came back we got a cab from Union Station mm-hmm and I was a little, you know, I didn't really think too much about it, but right. when we got close to my street yeah. on that, you know, and the cab started yeah. to break, yeah. I lost it because that's it's just because that I whole concept yeah. of
1: coming home again, yep. and coming you know, home. Dropped right yeah.
2: back into it. Like it was happening. Exactly. And so by the time we got up the driveway, I was at this and she came in and I didn't know what I was doing. I was back in the corner, huddled right. up shaking. Sure. And and God bless Gail. I mean, I, I feel so bad for these people that were witnessing all of this, you know, because they didn't know what to do. But right, you know, you're but responding I, I'm sh- to the traumatic memories.
1: Yes. And, and I'm sure after they had a moment to collect their thoughts and think about it, they were probably so pleased that they were able to be there Absolutely. with you and for you. Yeah,
0: because God, like that
1: them. in itself makes a huge difference oh. in what happens in the course of A trigger like that, certainly, absolutely, certainly, yes.
2: God bless me tremendously with great friends and people that were just willing to be there and hold me. Yes, I think that's. uh,
1: I I think Mm -hmm. that's key, definitely. After your husband's death, was your grief complicated by any legal issues, or was the media, you know, advertising it on TV or anything like that? Did that? happen so that that made everything a little more difficult for you?
2: Yes, it was a nightmare because my husband was a dentist and very well respected in the community. And as I said, okay. he was also a pilot. And so I was really much aware of his office and my son had gotten someone in there to run the practice because at the last few weeks, my sure. couldn't function, right. but there you know you know everybody's like this right of course he was very beloved he was an -hmm. incredible man strong christian did so much free dental work for people and so there was that piece around that that you know concerned me and it was a big piece that concerned him too because you know one episode i ended up taking him to the er after he locked himself in the airplane hangar for four hours in 100 Mm. degree heat in the car and he was like, "Don't say anything about right, you right. know suicide. Don't say anything about it. I don't want it to hurt the office or whatever." That was all traumatizing, but there was you know just all the practical things you have to go so through. We hadn't updated our will, and so the estate went into probate. Someone had stolen my identity. Someone had stolen my social security number and filed mm-hmm. taxes mm-hmm. with it. Uh, it just it was like I had to. Well, thank God for my son because he flew to Florida with a friend and we've had to put the place up for sale, clean that whole thing out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just one thing after another right, yeah, that right. just, you know, added more and more layers to sure, sure the whole net mess of it.
1: Yeah. Every little instance like yeah. that will just inhibit your grief from moving forward. Right. Um, and just the stress of it. I mean, you know, I yeah, don't having to deal absolutely. with this, but now
2: uh, yeah. all of this other stuff is happening. And, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. You're trying to sort through it. You're on the phone all the time. You're getting paperwork. People oh. are, or somebody was trying to sue me. It just was it was a nightmare.
0: Oh my gosh! Just piled on piled, yeah. on, piled just, on, piled okay, on. What a God. mess! Right? Wow.
1: wow. Now, had you? I know. Um, in one of the, I think it's like a publisher's release, or maybe it's in the inside jacket of your book. There's a statement that says nothing could hurt worse, but even in the darkness there's hope. Pardon me, Rita, but how can you say that being in the middle of that? You know. Did you feel hope at any of those times? Not or did that come really. later?
2: Yeah, it was yeah. later. I mean, okay. I, I was despairing of my own life. I wanted to take my life. Yeah. yeah. I had one incident that wasn't pretty that friends okay. had to witness that. Yeah. yeah. But no, I, I didn't have, I didn't think I could live without Mike. I mean, he was everything for me. Not only did we have this relationship, but he was just like this huge personality, and sure. he took care of everything. And so he was in
1: every moment of every day, sure. probably. I
2: felt like I didn't know what to do, so sure. I had to learn a lot, do a lot. the The anchor was always my faith. That's the only way I made mm-hmm. it out. Yeah uh, God showed up for me in some pretty big ways with a couple of visions I had, right. uh, you know, scriptures that i that mm-hmm. he gave me. Right. Uh, but I poured myself into that. Yeah. Okay, I was looking yeah. for the lifeline. And right. he, he showed up.
1: Well, I'm I'm glad you were able to recognize it when it came to you. Yeah. And you were able to turn to it and kind of cling to it, hang on. Mm-hmm. Prior to this happening, had you treated any clients who lost a loved one to suicide? No. No. It was not, not my
2: area of expertise.
1: Oh, okay. I wasn't
2: well-versed in anything about it. Okay. So... I mean, I was treating eating a lot of eating disorders, depression, and anxiety. Okay. But I never broached this. I didn't know anything about it, um, so it was really, you know, I mean, yeah. If I knew then what I know now, maybe exactly. it would have played out differently. But I, I have no guarantees of that either, Kathy. Right. I, I, mean, no, I don't I know what was wrong with Mike. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know some things, but would would it have had a different outcome? I don't know. And that's yeah. where I've had to leave it in God's hands.
1: Yeah, that's, that's one of the difficult things. And sometimes people get caught up in that. It's almost like trying to, trying to stress over things that you can't control at all. Right. These are things that you will never truly know the answer to. Right. So if you are able to somehow set them aside, accept what you know. And move on from there. And that's very, very difficult for that's yeah, a to long do. process
2: for everybody. Sure. I think the biggest thing with me was the guilt. And that took a long time. I mean, I think everybody feels since I work with suicidal clients or suicide mm-hmm. law survivors now. Of course, there's the why questions are the big sure. thing. Sure. Yeah. Uh, for me the guilt because I like I'm the counselor, right? And I couldn't right. even help my own husband save his life. So I was drowning in a lot of toxic beliefs, like I caused this, this was my fault. I mean, I don't know if people can just take a minute and breathe that in, like thinking about the person you love most in the world. Yeah. Imagine for a moment that you
1: believe wholeheartedly
2: that you're responsible for that person's death. Right,
1: right. That is overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. My husband died several years ago um, from cancer. He had a brain tumor. And I cared for him for about eight months after his diagnosis. And even after he died, I had some little flickers here and there about, you know, should I have made a different decision in regards to this clinical trial or should maybe I have talked to another doctor or gotten a second opinion or something? Even though I had those, it was, I won't say it was easy, but I was able to say, no, you, you did what you knew was right at that time. Mm-hmm. So don't dwell on it. Just set it aside. So it was certainly not a huge thing for me, just little flickers here and there. But I, I can understand how for you, you would be wondering constantly, you know, did I miss something? Should I have noted something else? Should I have done something else? I, I'm glad. Do you feel that you have been able to set that aside? Or do you still have tiny little thoughts now and then?
2: Yeah, I still do.
1: I I think it
2: was, I should have come back with him on the plane. Even though at that moment, I felt like we had a plan. He was okay. We were working the plan. I knew I was going to go down there with him. I think what really helped me was this whole idea of, so Martin Seligman has this uh, explanatory style thing. And it says, some people, people like, that tend to be subjective in their thinking look at everything through the lens of themselves. Like no matter what happens, it's my fault. If you're objective, you push back on that a bit and you say, me, not only me. So someone else was involved here and Mike was involved. And I can remember that day I was telling about that we were in the ER. I remember the clinical social worker talking to him and saying, you know, Mike, you can't, you have to take some kind of responsibility for your care. You can't just disappear on Rita in this state and, not think she's going to be anxious or whatever. Sure.
0: Right. sure. sure. She
2: was talking to him about some of this stuff. And so I started a, a pushing back on, okay, his responsibilities. Well, he wouldn't take the medication. Exactly. He wouldn't go get help until practically it was too late. Right. right? He didn't want to go to inpatient treatment. It finally forced him to. And I think he was really, I mean, he, he told my son that night
1: mm-hmm.
2: that he was just doing it for me. Yeah. Because he didn't, yeah. he didn't believe in any level. He was going to get better. Right. So when I look at that, it helped a little bit, right? I think right. If, if we had tackled this way before it got that bad, yeah, it could have had a different outcome. But well, there you are with another what if? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's all these whys and what ifs that the exactly. survivor is left with, and exactly. that's uh, there's a beautiful cl- quote that I use in uh, my when I lecture by uh, Dr. Edwin Schneiderman. and he was a huge uh, suicidologist back in the '40s. But he talks about how survivors of suicide are left with all the skeletons that were in the, you know, emotional closet of the person who took their life. And that causes them to just, you know, ruminate and all the why questions and their actual or or potential, you know, feelings of guilt for having caused the suicidal act or having not been able to abort it. Mm-hmm. And that's so true. Like all those skeletons in his emotional closet yeah. got dumped on me. Right. Right. And that's right. a big load to put on a a survivor. Right, certainly. Certainly.
0: Rita, do you have any other maybe suggestions or things that that people could do that might be suffering from some of that guilt while grieving because I, you know, trying to put myself in in your spot, I I think that would probably just about eat me up. Yes.
2: I think it's really the only person who could convince you of what you need to be convinced of is God. Mm-hmm. And the turning point really came for me when I was doing uh, this therapy called EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing.
1: Okay.
2: And so it's a bilateral brain stimulation. It's really uh, a very robust empirically validated treatment for trauma. Okay. And so I did some of that. And in this one session. God showed up in a powerful way. So I've got this thing on and it's making noises and bilaterally in both my ears. And I've gotten hooked up to this kind of a skin conductor thing. And she's walking me sooth, and, and the topic was my guilt. And I get this vision of me sitting on the side of our bed and Mike standing over me with his hands like this on my face. Okay. And he looks into my eyes with this laser-like gaze. And it, I can't even tell you how real it was. Like I could touch him. And he says, Rita, it's not your fault. Oh, mm-hmm. my. And it was like, boom. Like, I just felt like so much weight come off of me yeah. with that. You know, like, yeah. I mean, all I can say is I found, um, so he went to this one place here for a day treatment. He got like a, some papers from that. And four months after that, they were intake papers. And four months after he died, I was going through stuff and I found this. And he wrote all this stuff about how incredible I had been and how much he loved me. You know, um, it was all of the little things that happened helped me to realize that I did the best I could for what I was going through. And I think that's what people have to realize. Like this, this idea of self-compassion that being human means being subject to limitations right. is really where you have to help lead a client because at the beginning, I couldn't even conceive of that. But as time went by, I was able to hold out my compassion for myself because of what I had been going through. Right. I was so overwhelmed with his loss that I couldn't even consider myself. But really, I mean, I have a really good friend who's a therapist and she was like, this was literally three or four months of chaos and torment. Mm-hmm. I come home one night, he was up in the field. We have five acres and he, I, I hear the gun go off. Uh-huh. And so I'm screaming through the house. I'm running outside, I'm shaking. Oh, and here he yes. comes with the gun in his hand. He's in right. the hangar of the airplane. Like he's, it's just all this craziness. And right. it was happening so fast. I didn't have time to be in my own process, right? right. Much right. less anything else.
1: right? So I
2: think that helped me to, Have a little more mercy on myself that i could only be responsible for what i knew and that that day he left florida i thought everything the other really powerful thing for me was we laid in bed one night and he said to me i could never really go through with it because i could never live without you and i could never leave you with all of this mess but my mistake was believing him the kids, none of us really believed he was going to do it. Mike was a real dramatic person. Okay. Yeah. I mean, this was craziness, like, you know, but none of us really believed at the core of our beings that right. he was even his psychiatrist said right. Mike's a person who wants to live. Right. So that's why this whole idea of predictability with suicide. I mean, we can do all these um, evaluations and right. screenings and we need to do all that. And and there's some great tools out there, but For absolute surety, you can't 100% predict. You can't be 100%.
1: Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Goodness.
0: I want to change perspectives really quick. And what's the first thing that you would tell someone who would come to you as a therapist, maybe with a similar situation? What's the first thing you would say to them?
2: Well, I think empathy and collaboration are the core philosophy. Like, I mean, obviously I've gone through this, so I can certainly put myself on some level, everybody's relationships are different. So I can't totally know what someone else is going to feel, but I want them to know primarily that they're not alone and that I'm walking alongside of them. Right. Because that piece, I mean, attachment theory bears out this whole idea that, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're going to move toward people that are safe and secure base for us. And that calms our nervous system. Yeah. Right. And that's what happens to a lot of suicide suicidal people. They feel mm-hmm. intense right. aloneness yeah. and disconnection, perceived sense yep. of burdensomeness, afforded sense of belonging. Yep. I want them to know that they're not alone and that I'm walking alongside of them. Okay. The other thing is we got to calm the nervous system, whether mm-hmm. if it's, if it's hyper arousal like I was, we have to have things in place to calm. If it's shut down, we have to have things to do to wake up the system, right? Because trauma right. can do both. I'd go from absolute hysteria, freaking out. So right. My go-to for the first probably couple of years was curling up in a ball on anything. Mm-hmm. Like I just, I did it. It's called procedurally learned patterns, right? Because right. that's what I did that night. I curled yeah. up in a ball. Mm-hmm. And so anytime I'd get triggered or anytime I was, I'd curl up in a ball. And so mm-hmm. we had to intervene in those cycles to break those patterns right, and put in some adaptive ways of coping, Right. Uh, the other thing that's really important, so the trauma of, the trauma affects the brain, all the post-traumatic stress. The second and I talk about in the book is, you know, the depression, guilt, and shame leading to, you know, complicated mm-hmm. grief. And then this existential shattering that happens, crisis of faith, crisis of belief. So all this predictability that we thought we had figured out, at least on right. some level, about life. Yeah. God and the world around us, they're not going to work after the suicide because right. a bomb's gone off in your life and everything you believe has come into question. Right. So you're right. going to struggle with your beliefs. And so you have to work with the client meaning making reconstruction,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? That's a big right. part of recovery. And so we have to uh, work towards n- new sustainable frameworks of meaning for folks. Right. And that's what I have to do. Mm-hmm. We have to look at forgiveness. I mean, you know, a lot of people are angry. Right? Sure, I wasn't angry at Mike for some. Reason. I got angry at him later, but I, I, I watched this. My yeah. strong, incredible husband. And I remember mm. one day we were right before we were. It was in August, and we were on a vacation with my son and his wife. And he looked at me. It was real early. He said, "What's it like to watch me fall apart?" Oh, and so it's like that. Yeah, that's what I was witnessing.
0: You yeah.
2: know. And it was horrifying. I knew that something was really wrong. Yeah, sure. It wasn't just faking this.
1: Okay. So we gotta
2: look at, you know, the anger and forgiveness. We gotta look at anger and forgiveness with God.
1: Some people lose their faith. Yeah. It's a lot of work. Yeah. A lot of work. And it's I th- I think in the instance of suicide, you have to have someone to walk beside you. Yeah. I don't think this is a grief that you can just go it alone. Yeah. yeah. You have to have someone. To help you, I don't know how you could do it otherwise.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah, you're not alone, and that's that's the big the big thing is. And see the the other piece of this that gets so tricky is the stigma that's associated with suicide. Exactly. Yes, because you know people feel isolated and alone. Sure they do. Sure they do. And then you know it can hinder their help seeking behavior. Oh, I don't want to tell. More yeah. secrets come out about their exactly. loved yeah. I mean, yeah. everybody's already doing this when there's a suicide. Sure, sure. And so, you know, survivors are more reticent yeah. to go see yeah. help. Yeah. People are reticent about offering support too. Sure. I can remember I went to lunch one day. This lady in my widow's group organized this lunch. And I was asked, you know, one of the ladies said, well, how did your husband die? She literally jumped out of her chair and shrieked. And I mean, I didn't take offense because, I mean, they had all died by cancer. Right. But people don't know what to do with you. Yeah. yeah. They don't know what to say. It makes them uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. And so they tend to either say nothing right. or say the wrong thing. Yeah. Right. And that makes it more difficult for right. a, a loss survivor. Sure it does. Uh-huh. Right. And especially business. if there's unfinished business.
1: Yeah. Right. So so many pieces to it that I had never even thought of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you, your story your story's incredible. We're getting near the end of our session today. I could sit and listen to you talk for a long, long time, but if I asked to do any more, I'd have to pay you for your services, I think. <laughs> uh, but before we wrap up, Rita, we want to offer you the chance to speak directly to our listeners. Tell them about your other books, the services you offer, or anything at all you would like them to know. I think the big thing I want to know them
2: to know is this is a difficult there's not even words to say if you've experienced a loss by suicide, but I just want to encourage you to never, never give up. Your story isn't finished yet. The real story is still unfolding. It's yet to come. Be of good courage. Hang on to God. Hang on to somebody because there are people out there that really want to help. In terms of uh, my other books, my first book, Shattered, Finding Hope and Healing Through the Losses of Life, was written two months Released before Mike took his life. Mm-hmm. It was on loss and loss in terms of, uh, you know, I wanted to write about loss because I felt like it didn't matter what a client's presenting problem was, loss always seemed to be a significant thing that was woven into their narrative. Mm-hmm. Certainly. So I was curious about that. What makes yep. people resilient? And a lot of people have said, gee, do you think God had you write that book? Prepare you for this? So the second book came, that's called Imposter. That's a, I took a compilation of eating disordered client and do a lot of teaching in there about that and how to get our needs met. The third book was Think This, Not That. And that's about rewiring the brain and our Mm -hmm. neural networks, you know, learning about cognitive distortions and teaching people about all that. Uh And then this one obviously is about uh, a kind of a roadmap to healing for the suicide loss survivor.
1: Great. Ideas for another book? You have another I, you one know, I'm in kinda, your head?
2: I kind of toured with the idea of writing a novel, but I've, I right. haven't done that. But I, I might want to do something follow up like on resilience, uh-huh. because I think people have this idea that resilience, some people are just resilient. And that was my question when I wrote Shattered. How mm-hmm. do some people make it back from these catastrophic crises right. and yeah. still have their faith intact and other people kind of lose the battle altogether right. with a lesser right. loss? So resilience is something that can be learned and strengthened. Sure. And I think that, you know, maybe something I'd want to take a look at, but I'm just kind of... I bet
1: your novel would be dynamite. (laughs) Yeah, I I really have been thinking about that. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, I will say once again then, Rita, thank you so, so much for being our guest today and for being so candid in your conversation and relating your story and letting us know how it feels. I know our listeners weren't able to see, but there were several times that the emotions and the feeling were visible to Stephanie and I on your face, that even though it's been years, sometimes when you get back in those memories, start talking about some of the occurrences, it takes you right back there as if it just happened. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. This is going to be a very special episode. To our listeners out there, Thanks for listening today. We hope that you've really taken to heart the things that Rita have said. Maybe you haven't experienced a loss by suicide, but maybe you know someone who has. And maybe you can be one of those people that reach out to them and walk beside them in whatever way you can, even if they're getting help from a therapist. Still, they need people that they feel safe with, that they feel comfortable with, that aren't going to pass judgment. So do whatever you can for someone you know, even if you only know them a little bit, might be a good time to really get to know them and be that supportive friend. And we hope you'll join us again next week for another episode. For me, they just keep getting better and better. I just, I cannot believe when we started this podcast just last November, I think it's been nine months and we have met so many incredible people. I hope, listeners, that you keep tuning in, because we couldn't do it without you either. Take care of yourselves, remember self-care, that's one of our big things to advocate for, and we'll talk to you next week, and we'll all continue to live in greed.
0: Thank you so much for listening with us today. Do you have a topic that you'd like us to cover, or do you have a question from one of our episodes? Please email us at info at com and let us know. We hope you will find a moment to leave a review, send an email, and share with others. Join us next time as we continue to live and grieve together.